Well, as many of you know, the book that you hold in your hands, that we call the Bible, is actually not a single book. Rather, the Bible is 66 different books that are put together, and those 66 different books were not written by a single author at a single moment in in time in history. Rather, these 66 books were written by over 40 different authors spanning about 1,600 years. And then all of these 66 books were pieced together as the canon of Holy Scripture. Each one of these books then was written by a specific author for a specific reason and to a specific audience. And so as we begin this new book of the Bible, the book of Colossians, it's important for us to ask some questions about this text. For instance, who wrote this book? Who did they write it to? Under what circumstances did they write this letter? Why did they write this letter? What were they trying to achieve? Now, once we get answers to these kinds of questions, then what we have is we have the context to the letter that we're reading in front of us. And putting things in its right context is so important if we're going to understand what somebody is trying to say. For example, suppose my wife woke up early one morning and she came out into the living room and I was already gone for work and she saw a vase of flowers on the table. And then leaning up against the vase of flowers, she saw a handwritten note and it was in my handwriting. And the note said this, so in love with you, XO, XO, XO. What my wife would learn from and understand from seeing this note is what she already knows so well. I have an amazing husband. <laughs> I said that tongue in cheek. Now suppose that my wife was doing laundry and she was going through my, my jeans and turning them inside out and checking my pockets to make sure I didn't leave anything in there that I shouldn't have in there. And let's say as she was doing that, she pulled out a note. And this note wasn't in my handwriting or her handwriting. And the note read, so in love with you, XO, XO, XO. What she would understand from that is that her husband is seconds away from the most severe beating of his life. Right? So so think about this, though. Both of those notes said the exact same thing, but the context around those notes caused them to be uh, understood in totally different ways ways. And in the same way, when we're studying the Bible, we have to know something of the context of the letters that we're reading if we really hope to understand the message that the authors are trying to communicate. This morning, we're going to tackle these first eight verses in the book of Colossians, and we're going to get answers to some of those contextual questions, some some of those fundamental questions about this letter called the Colossians. Today's message is titled this, A Grateful Greeting. Let's look at the first two verses again. I'll begin reading now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. The first thing that we are going to consider in this introduction to the book of Colossians is Paul's greeting. And his greeting is these two verses, verses 1 and 2. Now, in ancient times, people actually wrote letters differently than we do today. Oftentimes, when we compose a letter, and we even see this with our emails, 
we will address the person that we're writing to. So we'll say, dear so-and-so. And then we'll write the body of our communication. And then at the very end of it, we'll actually sign our name. And so if somebody just got a letter from one of us, they would actually have to read the whole thing or maybe just scan all the way down to the bottom to figure out who is this thing actually from. In the ancient world, they didn't practice it that way. What they would do is right up front at the beginning of a note of communication, they would announce who this is from. And I actually think this is probably a better way of communicating with people. Now I know who this is from. Now I'm going to read the body of this information. And we see right at the beginning that the author of this letter is the Apostle Paul. It was Paul who wrote this letter, and he says he was joined by his faithful companion, Timothy. These are the authors of this letter. Now, notice that Paul announces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, what is an apostle? What does that word mean? The word apostle means one who is sent. So it's somebody who is actually sent out by another person, and that sent one, that apostle, um, is a person who is officially representing the one who sent them. They're on some official business. They're sent out by an individual. So it's a person who is sent on mission. And in the New Testament, that word apostle generally refers to the 12 apostles that Jesus chose to represent him to the world. Now notice that Paul here identifies himself as an apostle, and he also explains that this apostolic ministry is not something that he brought about or he manufactured. He actually writes there that his apostleship was by the will of God. And we know in the New Testament that God was the one who appointed Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to all of these non-Jewish people in the ancient Mediterranean world. And so what this means is that, that Paul didn't like apply for this job, right? He didn't send out a bunch of resumes. He didn't go to Jerusalem and connect with the other apostles and intern under them and hope that they'll hire him onto the team to become an apostle. That's not how this worked at all. We know from Paul's story that God radically got a hold of Paul. His name was Saul of Tarsus at that point. And God radically got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, and God converted him, God brought him into relationship with himself, and God commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So this is, again, not something that Paul manufactured. God had called him to be an apostle. This is an important point in the context of Colossians, because as we're going to learn later in this letter, there were people that were teaching false doctrine in Colossae, and these Christians there were having their faith threatened. And so Paul, right up front here, is assuring these Christians of his apostolic calling and ministry, that God had given it to him, and so the things that he was going to write to them were credible and should be believed. Now, whose apostle is he? Well, he says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. What does the word Christ mean? I think I heard somebody say it under their breath. It's Messiah. Christ is just the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. And the word Messiah literally means anointed one. Now, Jesus is known in the New Testament as the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one 
that the Jews all throughout the Old Testament were waiting to be sent by God to bring ultimate and full and final deliverance of God's people. There was this growing theme throughout the Old Testament that was just snowballing in anticipation that God was going to appoint a Messiah to come and again deliver his people. And so Paul and the rest of the New Testament constantly connect that Old Testament theme and that Old Testament hope and anticipation to Jesus of Nazareth. So Christ is a title. As we remind you often, it's not Jesus' last name. He's not Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ. It's a title. We even notice that in verse 3, Paul's comfortable just flipping it. There it's Jesus Christ. Here in verse 1, it's Christ Jesus. So again, Christ is a title. Jesus is the Messiah that God sent into the world. Now, one final note about Paul before we move into more of this letter is that Paul wrote Colossians from prison. We picked that up at the end of the letter, so let me just fast forward for a moment. Over in Colossians 4, verse 3, here's what Paul writes. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of, a, of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul is writing from prison. Most scholars think he's probably in prison in Rome at this time. Um, and he writes from prison. You could see also chapter 4, verse 10 or 4, verse 18. In all of these instances, Paul's explaining that he's in prison. Now, Paul's the author, and in verse 2, Paul tells us who this letter is addressed to, and he writes this, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So Paul is writing this letter to the church that was in a city called Colossae. Now, Colossae was a Roman city. It was not a very important city at this time, although back in its heyday before the Apostle Paul was alive, it was a very significant Roman city. But it had been sort of eclipsed by some of the other cities around it. So it wasn't a very significant place. But to give you an idea, Colossae is in modern day Turkey. And so Paul is writing this letter to Christians that are in the city of Colossae. The people of this city were reached with the gospel message. Some of them got saved and a little church was planted. And I was thinking about this. If not for that, if not for that fact that the gospel got preached in Colossae. Some people believed it and got saved, and a little tiny church started. If not for that, nobody would know about Colossae today, except for a couple of nerdy Roman historians or something. But like normal people would never know about this little town or this little city, Colossae, that existed 2,000 years ago. But the fact that the gospel got there and the fact that a church was established puts for all time this little town on the map. Now Paul uses a descriptor when he talks about the people in Colossae. He writes that he's speaking here to the saints as he refers to these believers. Now I know that's a word that gives people different kinds of feelings, right? Saints. Most people hear the word saint and they think that we're talking about some really super holy people. So kind of like the special forces of the church, right? Like these are our elite troops. These are the saints. These are people that might have statues or icons or things written about them, the saints. And a lot of that comes down through denominational tradition within 
the church. But we need to understand that when the scriptures speak of saints, the scriptures are not talking about special forces in the church. The scriptures are actually talking about every single follower of Jesus Christ. The word actually comes from the same root as the word holy. And so some translations, and if you have, I think it's the New International Version, I think it translates it this way, that he's writing to the holy ones. Now I know even that sounds intimidating, like he's writing to the holy ones. Are these like the really holy people, and I'm just a kind of holy or maybe not so holy person? Again, we need to dismiss that kind of thinking. The word holy simply means a person who is set apart from the world by God and for God. That's what a holy person is. That's what even a holy thing is. It's something that is taken that is common and normal, but it is set apart from what is common and normal by God and for God's purposes. And so every single Christian is a saint. So you could introduce yourself to your spouse or your friend right now if you wanted to as, hi, I'm Saint Daniel. That sounds great, doesn't it? Here's what Paul, or Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So now we're getting a different apostle's perspective. This is Peter. He says, but you, writing to a bunch of believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter there is explaining what I just said, that we as Christians are a holy nation. We're a special people that God has set apart from the world for himself so that we could proclaim his excellencies to the watching world around us. So if you are a Christian, you too are a saint. So Paul here is writing this letter to believers in Colossae. And after that lengthy introduction, he greets them with these beautiful words. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, this is interesting because Paul, how can I put this? Paul was a gifted theologian. Paul wasn't confused about the Bible in fact, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So Paul was a gifted theologian. Paul knew that if these folks were indeed saints and they were believers in Jesus, then Paul knew that they had already experienced grace and peace from God. Every single person who trusts in Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their Lord, experiences God's grace and experiences God's peace. Ephesians 2, 8 tells us as much. In Ephesians 2, 8, we read this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In Romans 5, 1, we learn where peace comes from. Paul writes there, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, he knows that these believers, these people he just called saints, these people that notice he said are his brothers, or brothers and sisters, and who he said, share our father in this introduction. So he sees them as his, as his spiritual family. He knows they've received God's grace and God's peace. But he writes this grace and peace to you because he wants these believers to experience more grace and more of God's peace. He wants them to experience a fullness of God's grace and God's peace. 
I mentioned a moment ago that in part this letter is written because there was false teaching in Colossae that was threatening the believers there. And, and, and essentially what they were saying is that although Jesus is wonderful, Jesus is not enough. And so there are other specific practices that you need to develop and other rules that you need to follow in order to really grow spiritually and really take off and really honor God. And you can imagine that for these young Christians, that was kind of unsettling. They had been told when they first heard the gospel that it's Jesus plus nothing. And now all of a sudden they've got people telling them, well, you need to do some other things to really make God happy. And I'm sure that they were struggling with anxiety and they were feeling unsettled about that. The peace of God that they should be walking in was probably something that was hard to come by. And so in part, Paul, as he's writing this letter, is doing this in an effort to help these believers to further experience God's grace in their lives. To experience that more fully and also to walk in God's peace. And as we as a church body here in 2021 study this letter, and as we allow the words of the Apostle Paul to help us refine and clarify our understanding of the gospel, guess what? You and I are going to experience a greater fullness of God's grace and God's peace in our own lives. So, From this letter's greeting, we learn that Paul is its author, Christians in Colossae are its audience, and we learn that Paul's desire in this letter is to help us to further experience God's grace and God's peace. Let's move on to verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So after this initial greeting that we just looked at, Paul now tells these believers That since the very day that he heard of their faith, he has not stopped to pray for them. Or he has not stopped praying for them, rather. That that he had a continual and regular practice every single day in his prayer life to mention these Christians in this city, Colossae. They were on his heart. They were in his prayers. And it was a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul was grateful, and so in this section, we look at Paul's gratitude in verses 3 through 6, and this is our second point in this text. He is always thanking God when he prays for them. I just want to point out one thing in verse 3. Notice now that he says this expression. He says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, go back to verse 2, and when he's talking to the Colossians, he talks about God, our Father, Paul's Father, and these Christians' Father. And now, when talking about Jesus, he calls God Jesus' Father. Now, this reminds us, Christians, that what Jesus is by nature, God's Son, we become through adoption. That because Jesus is the true Son 
of God the Father, the eternal Son of God the Father. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, He becomes our Father, and we become adopted children. And the same relationship that God has with His Son, Jesus, is afforded to all of us as sons and daughters of God. What a powerful and loaded idea there in verse 3. Well, there are three things in verses 4 through 6 that Paul wants to highlight that he is grateful for as he's heard about the faith of these believers. And the first one is exactly that in verse 4. Paul is grateful for their faith. Now, Paul, in verse 4, says, since we heard of your faith. Paul had heard about their faith, that they had trusted in Jesus to be their Savior, and guess what? He's fired up about it. He's not just like, oh, that's cool. Anyway, back to video games. No, he's fired up about it. He is excited about and grateful for the fact that he has heard of the faith of these people in Colossae. And he is rejoicing specifically over the fact that these people are saved, that these people have been brought from death to life, that these people who were once not a people are now the people of God. And as a Christian, there is really not anything more exciting than the knowledge that somebody else has put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they have experienced salvation, that they, just like you, have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's got to get us fired up. This is why baptisms are one of my absolute favorite things to do as a pastor. Being able to bear witness to somebody publicly declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ and somebody demonstrating, kind of picturing visually for us the reality of what has already taken place in their heart. That they have been crucified and they have been buried in death with Jesus as they go under the waters of baptism. And then just like Jesus was raised to new life, they are raised to new life by faith in Christ. It's beautiful, and this is why every time we have a baptism, it is literally the high point of our service, and we are so excited today to witness Kathy's baptism. Now, where did this faith come from that Paul is hearing about? How did they have faith in Jesus? Well, It came from the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 5. It says, They heard the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Now Paul in Romans 1.16 tells us that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And now here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is saying that, that their faith came as a result of them hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the gospel? That's one of those Christianese terms that we throw around constantly. Class, does anybody know what the gospel is? Anybody want to throw it out? What what does gospel mean? Good news. Good news. So the gospel is news, it's, it's information, it's content that is being delivered, and it's really, really good content. We live in a world where most of the news that we process 24-7 is bad news. This terrible tragedy happened. This part of the world's in chaos. This horrific thing happened in your community. And we're just bombarded with negative news. And how refreshing it is to get good news. To have a, uh, an announcement of something good and wholesome and wonderful that's happened. 
Well, Colossae lived in a world where they were bombarded with bad news too. Life in the Roman Empire was not easy. The vast majority of people, somewhere upwards of 90 plus percent of the population lived in poverty. War was constant. Disease and death were rampant. Life was not easy in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. And in that bleak, dark, negative news feed, the Colossians had some good news arrive in their community. And guess what? They heard that good news and they responded to it. And they grasped onto it. They clung to it like a life raft out in the middle of the ocean. And at verse 6, it tells us at the end of that verse, not only did they hear this news, but it says they understood the grace of God in truth. This is hugely significant. Because it teaches us this, you guys, that, that faith, in part, is understanding the true message of the grace of God. As opposed to false messages and false explanations of the grace of God. They understood the true message of the grace of God. And this is why the most important thing for me as a preacher and the most important thing for all of you as evangelists of the Lord Jesus Christ is that you and I have a crystal clear understanding of the truth of the gospel. That you and I are are laser focused on what the gospel is and what it's not. So that when we share the gospel and we communicate this good news, we communicate it in truth. So that people can understand the truth and they can respond to it and they can be made right with the Lord. So the most important thing for you as an evangelist, the most important thing for me as an evangelist and as a preacher, again, is that we're crystal clear about the gospel. That when we talk about the grace of God, that we're, we're, we're putting that in true categories and we're helping people to understand what it actually means to respond to the gospel and to follow Jesus Christ. The most important thing is not that you're handsome or beautiful. And all of us who have faces made for radio say, hallelujah. That's not the most important thing, to be effective for the Lord. And it's not about being eloquent or articulate or charismatic or dynamic in our presentation. At the end of the day, the most important piece of the puzzle is that you are clear and you're accurate with the gospel. And so we need to become students of the gospel. This is why we preach about the gospel constantly. This is why Paul writes about the gospel constantly because everything comes back down to that central message of good news that a dark and sad and hopeless world needs to hear. This is the most important thing. And these Colossians, they heard a true presentation of the gospel and they understood it and they believed it and everything changed. They came to faith. The second thing that Paul is grateful for is also in verse 4. It's not just their faith, but now it's their love. Specifically, it's their love for other believers. He says in verse 4 that he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. Important word there, all. It was their love for all of the Christians. 
Not just for their own clique, not just for the people that they liked. Any and every person who was a brother or a sister in Christ who had the same father, God in heaven, I love that person. Those are my kind of people. And Paul had heard that they had love for one another. As we'll see in this letter, Paul even heard that they had had love for him. Somebody who they had never even seen with their own eyes. And Paul is fired up about this. He is so grateful that they love one another. And the reason why this matters so much to Paul is because loving other believers is one of the most important evidences that you love God and that you are, in fact, saved. And that you do belong to Jesus. In other words, the fact that these people in Colossae loved other Christians indicated to Paul that these people were truly born again. In 1 John 4, 11 and 12, we read this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So, so Paul's saying that it, it, as we love each other in the body of Christ, it's evidence that God's love is in us and that God abides in us. Today, a great test that you can run on yourself is to ask this question, do I truly love other Christians? I, I love the experience, and it happens so often, where you meet a Christian for the first time. And you find out, oh, this person's a Christian. And there's that instant connection. And it's, it's almost like you have, because this is true, you have like a, a family history with them now. And you have all of this common vocabulary and, and experiences that, that you can talk about because they too are in Christ and they are your family. And so we need to ask ourselves, do I love other Christians? Certainly we need to start with that right here in our own body. Do I love the other people here at Apostles Church? And I know as pastors, we are so thankful to God that the number one compliment that we get, and we get this constantly from visitors, the number one compliment besides how handsome the senior pastor is, is actually only my wife gives, gives me that feedback. It's amazing. But um, the number one compliment, being honest, is this congregation is so loving. We hear it almost every Sunday from somebody. And I love that for the same reason Paul loved that. Because it indicates that God is with us and that people here are truly followers of Jesus Christ and they have God abiding in them. It's an amazing and important thing. Now notice in verse 5 that Paul says that the reason for both their faith and their love is because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So they have a hope that's not attached to something here on this earth. It's not a hope in your portfolio. It's not a hope in your retirement accounts. It's not a hope in your relationships here. It's a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So they had tethered their hearts to eternal realities they had heard the gospel and how in the gospel they could have their sins forgiven. They could be reconciled to God. They could have the Spirit of God take up residence in their life. And they would have eternal life after they die here on this earth. And they would be with God forever. And guess what? They believed that faith was born. Loving one another was a result 
and they were living with their hearts fixated on heaven. This is what the gospel does. And this is such a great reminder to you and me that the gospel that we preach is a message of hope. And if we're not communicating it that way, we're missing some important pieces of the gospel. I mean, what other message out there can even come close to comparing to the message of the gospel and its ability to give people hope? I mean, we're all going to suffer in this life. We all already have. We're all going to go through countless disappointments and heartaches. We're all going to lose loved ones. We are all ourselves going to die. We can't stop that. And so any other message out there that you're trying to find hope in is going to ultimately leave you disappointed because you can't stake your eternity on it. But the gospel message, the gospel that we preach is a message of hope. A hope that cannot be disappointed because it is hope not just for this life, but even more importantly, it's hope beyond the grave because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I have a message of great hope. Lastly here, Paul is grateful in verse 6 for their growth. They heard about the hope of heaven from the gospel, which look at verse 6. He says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Paul is sitting here in prison, in Rome. He's writing to these Colossians and he is rejoicing before God. He is grateful to God because he is hearing about their growth. You see, the gospel was was spreading like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean world, in cities in Asia and Africa and Europe, and everywhere the gospel was being preached, lives were being transformed, and the gospel was bearing fruit. And Colossae was no different. He says it's bearing fruit and it's growing as it also does among you. So these people that Paul is writing to, they had experienced the fruit of the gospel that their own lives were being transformed, and then they began bearing noticeable fruit. They became loving and kind, patient and understanding, generous and cheerful, encouraging and wholesome. And they began to hold loosely the things of this world and to set their hope on what was laid up for them in heaven. In short, the fruit of the Spirit was evident in their lives. Guys, everywhere the gospel takes root, it bears fruit. Everywhere. Everywhere that the gospel takes root, it bears fruit. This is the nature of fruit and plants. There are no exceptions to this. When somebody believes in Jesus and truly receives the gospel like we're talking about, it is inevitable that they will bear fruit. There's no stopping this from happening. I already read Ephesians 2.8 for you, but let me just add the, the following two verses so you can see this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul here is saying, look, for those of us who have been saved by God's grace through faith, He says, God has prepared 
good works for us before we even came to faith. God already had these things lined up in your future so that once you get saved, which is God's work, you didn't bring that about, God would continue working and you would step out and start walking in those good works that he prepared for you. I mean, this is the point of the, the parable of the soils where Jesus talks about the sower who sows seed and it lands on different soils and in that final soil it bore fruit 60-fold, 100-fold. When somebody puts their faith in Jesus, they bear fruit. They will become more and more like Jesus. They will think they will talk, they will act, and they will live much like he did. If you consider yourself a Christian, is there noticeable fruit in your life? Like, can you look at your life and say, this is how my desires are different than they used to be. I used to be driven and want and long for these things. But I'm just not that way anymore. Now, now I desire these things over here that God wants me to desire. Are, are you able to say, this is how my decisions that I make are now different than the decisions that I would have made or used to make before I was a Christian? Are you able to look at your life and say, this is how my words and the things that I talk about and the way that I talk, this is how that's different now than it would be for a non-Christian or than it was for me before I started following Jesus as my Lord? What about attitudes? What about actions and behaviors and habits and practices? Like, family, we have to, we have to constantly take inventory of these things. We, don't, we can't live fooling ourselves. Like, can you look at your life, and I'm not saying you went from here to, I'm the Apostle Paul today, but can you just look at your life and just say, man, it really looks like I met the creator of the universe. And it kind of seems like maybe he's actually living inside my body. And if the creator of the universe is living inside my heart, it's going to change some things. I can't be the same person I used to be. So can you look? Can you see things? Can other people see things in you that just goes, gosh, that, that kind of reminds me of Jesus. The way Jesus lived and looked and loved. And if not, we need to do some serious heart work. The final thing I want to bring to your attention this morning is found in verses 7 and 8. We've looked at Paul's greeting, Paul's gratitude, and finally, because I'm a preacher, it has to be alliterated, Paul's go-between, verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, here in these last two verses, we do learn a bit more about the background of this letter. This church was not planted by Paul. Did you see that there? Paul planted a lot of churches, but Paul did not plant this church. Paul says that they heard the gospel and they got saved through the ministry of a man named Epaphras. Remember back in verse 4, Paul heard about their faith from somebody else. And according to verse 8, the man that he heard about them from was Epaphras. Not only did he not plant this church, as I mentioned a moment ago, Paul had never seen them with his eyes and they had never seen him. They had never had a physical meetup and guess what? There was no FaceTime 2,000 years ago. He says this in, Ephesians, or in Colossians 2.1. Not that there was no FaceTime, but that he had never seen them. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all who have not seen me face to face. 
So Paul had never visited these people, and he did not plant this church. Scholars think that Epaphras got saved when Paul did start a church in Ephesus, which was not far. And so Epaphras heard the gospel in truth from Paul. He believed, he got saved, and guess what? He got fired up and he went home to Colossae. And when he got home, he couldn't take the light that he had received and put it under a lampshade and stick it under the bed. That's a metaphor of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He got home and he was on fire and he started telling family and friends and co-workers and other people about this good news and he preached it in truth and people put their faith in Jesus and got saved and a little church got started in Colossae. But eventually, as I mentioned, this church came under attack and there was false teaching and Epaphras who loved these people and who loved the gospel ends up taking off on roughly a thousand mile journey much of it by foot, all the way to Rome to go consult with the Apostle Paul and to ask him for help in shepherding and caring for this church in Colossae. This letter that we're reading is Paul's pastoral response to the issues in Colossae. So Paul's go-between to the church was this wonderful, godly man named Epaphras. And we don't know much about him, but what we do know is good enough. Here's what Paul writes about him. He was a beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. This man, who again, we don't know a lot about, he was faithful. He was a faithful servant and he was a faithful minister of Christ. So this man had faithful doctrine. He could rightly preach the gospel and he was faithful to serve this church. And family, let me remind you that faithfulness is what matters most. Jesus will not say, well done, good and successful servant. Jesus will not say, well done, good and influential servant. Jesus will not say, well done, good and innovative servant. What Jesus is going to say to all of us who abide in him is what he undoubtedly said to Epaphras when Epaphras died 2,000 years ago. He looked him in the eyes and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness, as far as ministry is concerned, is what matters most. And this man was faithful with the gospel and he was a faithful and loved servant of God. What kind of servant? A servant who is very much like Jesus. Jesus sacrificed everything for his bride, the church. And here's this man who had experienced Jesus and he was willing to sacrifice so much for this church. Again, journeying a thousand miles just to get pastoral help for these believers because he was scared that their faith might get shipwrecked. It's incredible. It's a convicting example of the tremendous sacrifices that people have made all throughout history and are still making today to make sure that the gospel is protected and safeguarded and that it's preached to people who have never heard it. Colossians chapter 1 is a warm and encouraging introduction to this church from the Apostle Paul. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's wonderful prayer for these believers in Colossae. But Paul's intro is warm, 
because he knows that regardless of whatever other issues might exist in this church in Colossae, the fact that these people are in Christ is all the reason that he needs to celebrate and to be thankful to God for them. And the message that he's going to constantly bring to them throughout this book is that spiritual life, eternal life, life lived to its fullest is found in no one else and nothing else than the person of Jesus the Christ. And so this morning, if you are in Christ, you have great reason to celebrate and to be grateful to God. And the reason for that is because if you are in Christ today, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You have been reconciled to God who is no longer just your creator and your judge, but is now your father and a perfect father. And you can rejoice this morning because you have a hope laid up for you in heaven. And one day at the resurrection, Jesus is going to call your number and the dead in Christ will rise first and we will be with the Lord and all of the saints from all of eternity and for all of eternity. And so we have great reason to be grateful this morning. And if you're not in Christ this morning, as we close to pray, my prayer for you is that you would today realize how amazing God is, how unbelievable his love is for you, and that you would realize how much Christ has done for you to give you life and eternal life, and that you would come to him and make him your Lord and your Savior from this day forward. Would you please pray with me?